Hi, welcome to On Jordan, a podcast on the latest developments in Jordanian politics, featuring interviews with experts on the Hashemite Kingdom. My name is Aaron Magid, a former Oman-based journalist now in Washington. While the Hashemite Kingdom enjoys a greater levels of security than many Arab countries, Jordanians don't lack reasons to protest. Official unemployment rate in the country is near 23%. A recent IRI poll found that 87% of Jordanians say that corruption exists to a great or medium extent within state institutions. And in Freedom House's most recent annual report, the group downgraded Jordan to its lowest ranking of not free. So to better understand the country's protest movement, it's great to welcome Professor Jillian Schwedler to the podcast. Dr. Schwedler recently published a new book titled Protesting Jordan, Geographies of Power and Dissent. She is a longtime analyst in the Hashemite Kingdom and a professor of political science at Hunter College. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. In the past 20 years, Jordan's faced major protests during the Arab Spring from 2011 through 2013, and then in 2018 over a tax law. But besides these two periods, some analysts say that demonstrations haven't played a significant role in Jordan. Is this accurate? I think it's not accurate. It's If you're not really paying attention to the environment of protests in Jordan, then yes, those are the protests you see when you have nationwide protests and people pouring into the street. You also see protests of that scale around Israeli incursions and activities into Palestinian lands where you have massive outpouring on the streets. But those are the protests that most people pay attention to and notice. There hasn't been a year since 1989 that had less than 100 protests in a year, and often many hundreds and even a thousand or more protests in a year. And this is uh, from the 90s and 2000s. I'm not even talking about the uprising period. The protests take a number of different forms. So you have those massive outpouring where the average person will join uh, groups on the street. You also have protests organized by activists around specific interests and specific issues, um, such as changes to the press and publication law. And there'll be many protests around those, often located at the uh, syndicate offices at in front of parliament. You'll have political parties that will organize protests, like the Islamic Action Front organizes very many protests, often downtown at the Grand Husseini Mosque. But if you don't happen to be down there, you're not really knowing about it. It's not particularly visible or disruptive. And then you also have protests that take place outside of Amman in very many of the East Bank communities, also in Palestinian camps that are also small and around specific issues, as well as hundreds of labor protests a year. So when you put these all together, it's actually an incredibly rich landscape of diverse protests, but most of them people don't encounter, they don't make it into the news, and so they're simply not aware of the scale of protest activity that takes place in Jordan on a regular basis. What are the obstacles the Jordanian government has placed to make protests more difficult? Well, there's a number of things. They introduce and change the laws all the time about public gathering, about what you can say. It's under several laws. You can't criticize the king, for example. So there's those kinds of laws that are intended to constrain protest. But when you talk to most activists and many of the political parties, they don't really pay heed to those. They're going to go out and protest what they want anyways. And so the government has other kinds of ways in which they're trying to either prevent or stop protests from harassment of individuals, threatening their jobs, calling them, monitoring them, letting them know they're being monitored, uh, contacting their family, that kind of harassment. And you also have a ways in which they try to control the spaces of the the built environment where, where you can have a protest. And so certain spaces like the fourth circle around the office of the prime ministry have become some of the more contentious spaces. And so the government will go to great lengths to prevent protests from gathering at those locations, whereas they'll meet in many other locations without any interference at all. 
The Jordanian government often highlights how it treated protests during the Arab Spring in contrast to the high death toll elsewhere in the region, such as Egypt or Syria. So is this a Jordanian success story? I think it depends how you want to think of success. It's true on the one hand that you don't have the kinds of massacres that you've seen in places like Syria and Egypt and elsewhere in the region. And on one hand, you want to congratulate the monarchy for not massacring protesters. On the other hand, they do go to great lengths and people do lose jobs, people are harassed, some of them are made to leave the country, um, families of protesters suffer tremendously, businesses are shut down. So they do go to great lengths to constrain the protest environment, but they're very reluctant to resort to kind of mass violence that others do. Activists don't really think of it as a success because they're not able to express political dissent in an open way in the kinds of ways that they would like. The government's always harassing them, dislocating their, or relocating them, moving them to different places, and so on. On the other hand, I think it is important that the government doesn't resort to extreme violence, to live, shooting live ammunition into crowds. But one has to be careful about congratulating Jordan for being less bad than Sisi's regime or less bad than Bashar al-Assad's regime, because the reality is the environment is highly constrained. But what's impressive is how much Jordanians still go out and insist on expressing themselves, despite the consequences that many of them face. There is a common refrain that Jordanian protests criticize the prime minister or parliament, but are careful not to criticize the king himself. Is this consistent with your research? I think it was very consistent from the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, and up until today, you still have the same kind of critique lobbied at the prime minister because it is illegal to criticize the king directly. However, beginning in 2010 and a little bit earlier, but most notably and publicly in 2010, this retired veterans association issued a manifesto that explicitly criticized the king, explicitly criticized the queen and accused them of corruption and of taking Jordan down a very dangerous path for its future. During the uprising period, you had very few voices in the early period of 2011 directly criticizing the king, but it really escalated where people would infrequently but periodically take out photos of the king and rip them up or burn them, and those individuals would be arrested and spend prison time until they were released. Uh, but by the fall of 2012, you did actually have a large number of, of uh, protesters calling for the fall of the regime, the classic Arab uprising slogan, criticizing the king directly, some protesters suggesting that Prince Hamza might be preferable to um, King Abdullah as a monarch, as a Hashemite. And since that period in the 2010s, you've seen quite significant escalation, direct escalation of the king. And I document in my book uh, a large number of the chants that are uh, recited at protests including uh, variations of called the corruption debka, in which they liken, uh, one popular version likens the king to Alibaba and his 40 thieves, but then by the second refrain they're saying Abdullah II. Uh, so it's a very direct and explicit criticism of the king for corruption, and that has really changed in the past decade. If you're not looking at all these smaller protests, which sometimes only have a few dozen people at them, you miss this escalation in rhetoric if you're just jumping from one large protest to the next large protest. But if you track all the smaller protests, and interestingly, among the, the regime's supposed traditional East Bank tribal communities, if you track their pro protests, you see a very clear escalation and willingness to directly criticize the king and call for his removal or replacement by someone else. 
How do the dynamics between Jordanians of Palestinian origin and those of East Bank background impact the protest movement in the kingdom? Well, the conventional view is that Palestinians only Jordanians of Palestinian descent only really protest around issues related to Palestine. And certainly they do in very large numbers. But it's not true that they don't engage in protests around other kinds of issues. And so particularly during the uprisings, you saw deepening of activist networks, uh, including Palestinian activists who would come and protest and organize alongside more East Bank uh, activists. You saw them even traveling outside of the camps and outside of Amman to other locations to join protests for example, around the anti-gas deal with Israel protests. There is actually a lot of engagement of Palestinians in a diverse uh, range of protests, but they're not necessarily immediately visible as Palestinians because they're not carrying a Palestinian flag. They're engaging in protests around restrictions on the press, restrictions on public assembly, on uh, inability to pass your citizen, for women to pass their citizenship to their children. These issues affect Palestinians significantly, but not only Palestinians. They affect many others as well. And so you do find actually a much larger number of Palestinians engaged in street-level activism than that conventional view would have you believe. Even during the uprisings, people repeated over and over that there were no uprisings in the camps except one in the Baka camp, and there were in fact a number. It wasn't massive and they weren't large, but there were a number of protests and even more, many who traveled from the camps into Amman to join larger protests. So does the Jordanian government use a national origin question between Jordanians of Palestinian background and those of tribal descent to divide the protesters? Well, what is interesting is that if you are a Palestinian protester, the threats from the regime are much more severe in terms of how it's going to affect your family and your ability to get a job and these kinds of issues. So I think the government explicitly states that we are all Jordanian. It has these periodic PR campaigns, the We Are All Jordanian campaign, the Jordan First campaign that preceded that, and others that say we are all a nation, we come from different places, but we're still all Jordanian, and explicitly that's inclusive of Palestinians. In practice, the government around protest policing, around questions of passport, around questions of citizenship rights, and so on, and education uh, in the public sector, you in fact see a wide variety of techniques by which the government is continually separating out Palestinians through different status, through different practices, etc. So the picture is that it speaks of being inclusive, but in practice it's reproducing those tensions and those exclusions on a very systematic and regular basis. And the human rights organizations document these campaigns and and issues in detail. Every few years, you can find a new report that really delves into how the practices are reproducing the separation, despite the public rhetoric otherwise. So even with international media attention, why didn't we see large Jordanian protests over the Pandora Papers and Swiss bank leaks showing King Abdullah's significant wealth overseas? Well, it's always tricky to speculate when something doesn't happen, why it doesn't happen. Anecdotally, from the many people that I talked to about this, they didn't think it was that particularly surprising. It was evidence of something they knew um, directly, that they expected that the monarchy would have mansions in various locations. And some even commented that the, that the dollar amounts cited in the various news sources uh, from the Pandora Papers seemed much smaller than they expected they might have been. And so there were some chuckles around that. It's not surprising to me that you didn't see people pour out around those issues, particularly 
But when you find other issues that come up around anti-austerity protests that raise issues of corruption and what the regime malfeasance in these kinds of issues, economic bias and privilege towards those who are connected, these kinds of issues then resurface and are mentioned in larger protests, but didn't spark their own protests on their own right. So as King Abdullah grooms Crown Prince Hussein, giving him increased prominence both in Jordan and abroad, have there been any large protests against the Crown Prince, as we saw in Egypt when there was talk of transferring power from Hosni Mubarak to his son? No, I hadn't seen any that I'm aware of. I think in part because Jordan is a monarchy and some people object to the monarchy, but many people embrace the monarchy. They just want it to take better care of the citizens. Um, and so according to the constitution and according to sort of tradition, the king will pass leadership to his son or to whoever's designated crown prince. In Egypt and similarly in uh, Yemen, when there was talk of Ali Abdullah Saleh passing to his son, these are supposedly republics with elected presidents. So for them, they were treated as emerging monarchies of some sort, you know, trying to keep the, the line of succession in the family, where in Jordan, that line of succession isn't widely challenged at all. So I think a lot of people think of the crown prince as young and inexperienced, and they have issues with the king perhaps because they like Prince Hamza better, or they just don't like the king at all, they don't like Queen Rania. But the question of succession, that it should go to a son, isn't a topic that's particularly controversial. Protests may have seen wins in getting a specific prime minister removed or a new job program, but have demonstrations achieved strategic victory in terms of Jordan's struggling economy, overall political system, or foreign relations? No victories of significance on those issues as far as I've seen. Uh, it continues on the economic front, it continues the austerity measures, it continues the privatization push, it continues to attract direct foreign investment and neoliberalism is invoked, the language of neoliberalism is invoked explicitly at protests as something problematic. But the monarchy really has doubled down on those and relies on them. Now in some cases the victories will be workarounds, so we'll, we'll lift a subsidy technically but we'll find other ways to provide to a community that sort of mitigates the effect of the loss of subsidies. Um, and uh, Jose Martinez's recent book on uh, bread and bakeries in Jordan covers this in detail, what happened with the lifting of the bread subsidies. But I think the success failure question around, did the protest accomplish the change in policy or practice or law that it intended is going to yield mostly no. However, Part of what I try to show in my book is this might not be the only metric to consider. Of course, it's significant to consider, but it's not the only one. And in fact, I show that there's so much protest in Jordan that the monarchy is constantly scrambling to preempt, to shut down protests, to preempt, to placate groups that are angry in certain tribal areas that are frustrated. So they're constantly scrambling to try to prevent all this public dissent from surfacing into political protest. And so in a sense, we don't simply have an established monarchy with these periodic moments of uprising or protests or dissent. You actually have this con constantly ongoing dialectical relationship where the regime is consistently scrambling to try to preempt and silent all forms of dissent through, as I said, some of these techniques of harassing particular individuals, arresting many, many people and putting them in prison, making people lose their jobs and businesses, and also structuring the built environment in a way that makes it impossible to protest in more visible areas, impossible to be as disruptive as you could be 10 or 15 years ago. 
And so if you're not simply looking at, did the protesters get what they want? Protest as a whole is profoundly influential in shaping Jordanian politics on a way, in, in a ways that many people aren't recognizing. So what topic motivates the largest demonstrations in Jordan? Is it domestic grievances or foreign policy matters like ties with Israel? So it's foreign wars like the Iraq war, for example, brought a very large number of sustained protests that went on for weeks and weeks. Anti-austerity protests around IMF and World Bank uh, reforms, uh, agreements that the government makes, and uh, Israel-Palestine. So questions about Israel actions into Palestinian lands uh, also bring massive people to the streets. So one of those is domestic, the austerity neoliberalism, and the other is foreign wars, as well as Israel are uh, arguably external, but of course the Israel question is not fully external to Jordan uh, because of its massive population of uh, Palestinian refugees. You're saying the economic woes and foreign wars are more impactful for Jordanian demonstrations and issues like free speech or other political rights? Well, those are, those are the ones that bring the largest numbers of people to the street. Those are the ones that will bring your quote-unquote average Jordanian, that is not activists, not members of political parties. You do see, in fact, a number of protests around issues of rights and freedoms, uh, dozens of them a year, but they'll often attract a dozen people, five or 600 people, but not the 10,000, 20,000 that the other issues, that the foreign issues or the austerity, which is a domestic issue, the austerity protests will spark. Only those issues seem to bring people out en masse. Last question. Is there anything else about your book that you haven't mentioned that you think is important? One of the most important insights is, or two of them, which I mentioned, but just to highlight, is how common protests are how steadfast Jordanians are in expressing themselves publicly despite the regime's effort to arrest, intimidate, silence, etc. And also the extent to which they're not simply focused in Amman. You have a large number of small protests around the country that are very disruptive. So sometimes you'll have 20, 30 people in an outlying small East Bank village that's angry because they don't have clean water, but they will go out and block the major north-south trucking highway and insist on stopping all traffic, including you know, very important trade traffic, until the king comes out and discusses with them why they don't have adequate water. So those kinds of protests often fall under the radar, but they're pretty significant. And I think, I think to really understand that broader protest environment, you need to first get out of Amman, you need to look beyond what is being covered in the press and the media, and you need to recognize that sometimes little protests, like a few dozen people, blocking a road and stopping north-south traffic can be more powerful and more influential than three or 4,000 people in downtown Amman by the Grand Husseini Mosque, where if you're a half a mile away, you might not even be aware that thousands of people are down there. So I think that's an insight that's often lost on the people that track the size and frequency of protests. We assume that large protests are necessarily more disruptive, and certainly the nationwide protests are, but a protest of three or 4,000 might be less disruptive than two dozen people, depending on the location and the demands they're making and what their activities actually are. Thank you very much, Professor. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. That was Professor Jillian Schwedler. Here's what else you should know this week. In an interview published by CNBC on July 11th, King Abdullah said Jordan is in a very good position amid the food security challenges resulting from the Ukraine war. 
Hasselhoff Monarch added that Jordan has 15 months worth of wheat and barley. In other news, Jordan's Prime Minister, Bashar Hassouna, told BBC Arabic that Amman has never treated Iran as a threat to national security. He also noted that the rate of Iranian attacks against neighboring countries has decreased. Hassouna's remarks appear to contradict the Jordanian military spokesman, who said in May that Iranian militias are the most dangerous because they target Jordan's national security. Before I go, please check out previous podcasts, including former Jordanian Foreign Minister Moan Moasher discussing his ideas for political change in the kingdom, along with Jordanian Minister Nayef Al-Fayez highlighting Jordan's tourism industry. Finally, if you'd like to join the podcast, especially if you live in Jordan, or think of a topic worth discussing, please reach out to me on Twitter, at Aaron Magid, or via email, aaron.magid1 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.